0: Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. You know, I continuously say I'm super excited about today's show, but because we do topics that I love, I am always excited to be here. Uh, As always, Sabrina, she's with me. Yes, 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 yes. You're just a happy person, Melissa. Well, I'm always excited to discuss true crime. (laughs) (laughs) My writing partner and another true crime is junkie the right word, Larry Amorose.
1: I'm good with that. I'm absolutely good with that.
0: And we are joined today by a really special guest, James Renner, you are an author, a journalist, a filmmaker, and with the porch light project, apparently Batman. <laughs> How did this?
2: That's t- all true. That's all true.
0: All true. Uh, do your children know you're Batman?
2: Uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is uh, they, they, they're just at that age now where they're starting to realize what I do. And they're, they're taking a, an interest in it. My, my son already wants to be a defense attorney, which is awesome. Um, my son's 12. My daughter's uh, turning eight here. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe they do think I'm Batman. Um, yeah, but
0: when you have to explain to your friends at school, "Hi, my dad deals with killers," <laughs> it's it's it, it can maybe make a kindergarten teacher go, "Hmm, <laughs> yeah." No,
2: th- this is this is probably true. Yeah, what does your dad do? He hunts serial killers. Okay, let's go to Sally's for the yeah. account.
0: Exactly. How, let's just get right into it. How did this all start?
2: Yeah. So, um, I came into true crime, uh, you know, it's the only hipster part of me. I was into true crime before true crime was cool. Um, you know, that it started like way back when I was, uh, 11 years old. And my mother lived in Rocky river, which is a suburb of Ohio. And it's right next to like the, the ritzy suburb, which is called Bay village, like the safest neighborhood in Ohio. And, uh, in 1989, when I was 11 years old, the girl, in the town next door was abducted. And her name was Amy Mihaljevic, and we were both born in 78, so we we're about the same age. And I remember riding my bike around town, and on all the telephone poles, there, there was this missing poster of this girl with like a side-saddle ponytail of, you know, 80s hair. And uh, I thought, you know, if that girl went to my school, I'd be passing notes to her. You know, I, what <laughs> happened, right? So
0: <laughs> it's nice that your first crush was on a missing poster but well yeah this is a whole separate podcast. <laughs> uh
2: yeah, and years of therapy. So um uh she was missing for several months and I used to get on my Huffy 2 speed and drive it to there was a big mall there at the time called Westgate Mall and uh you know back in the day, you know before the internet, before Amazon, everybody went to the mall and I was packed. So that was the most people that were in any location around there. So what I would do is I would, I would stake out the place and I would sit uh, outside of borders and I'd watch the people in the mall. And if I, I saw a man who looked like the composite sketch of her abductor, I would follow him out to his car and write down the license plate and then call in the tip from the payphone outside of the arcade. And uh but of course I'm eleven years old. The only number that I can think of that I know by heart is 8765353, which was the call in line's unsolved mysteries. So <laughs> <laughs> somewhere.
0: Oh my god, your poor parents.
2: <laughs> they got all these phone calls from a, a kid, you know, on the Amy Mahalova case. So.
0: But I mean that's amazing that it started that early. But your parents yeah. had to be like, Hmm. We need to, we need to keep an eye on him.
2: (laughs) Well, you would hope. Um, My my parents were old hippies and I I don't think they knew what I was doing half the time. So I had, I had pretty much free reign. And uh, so they, unfortunately they found her body a few months later and then it became a search for her killer. And uh, Amy Mahalovic's case was the subject of my first book which was published in 2006. And then everything kinda came from there.
0: It, it, it's amazing to me that that started so early for you. I love the fact that you still remember the Unsolved Mysteries uh, <laughs> phone number. Right. It, so that was the first case that sort of got your interest, and that's really how your passion for true crime started. Um, how did it evolve? I mean, I know that you were writing for the for a newspaper
2: yep. in Akron. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Did you do ride-alongs? <laughs> i you know, what's interesting is I've never done a, a ride-along, um, but I've interviewed, you know, dozens of of detectives and police officers and FBI agents. And um, at the time, I was writing for a newspaper called the Cleveland Scene, and that was like the Village Voice newspaper uh, for Cleveland. And I, it was it was such a fun job, especially when the paper was big and journalism was still going strong. And uh, I started uh, writing about these unsolved murders around Cleveland. At the time, we had two women, uh, young women that were missing, Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus. And uh, I remember covering their case extensively um, back in 2005. And uh, I met with their parents. And I remember sitting next to Gina's father, Felix, and he, he told me, he whispered to me, he's like, I know she's not dead. I, I'd feel it in my heart if she passed. And I remember, you know, the pity I felt for him because, of course, she had to be dead. You know, she'd been missing for several years by then, and um, no way could she still be alive. Um, and then, of course, we know the end of that story, where Gina Jesus and Amanda Berry and uh, Michelle Knight came out of that house on the west side of Cleveland, uh, owned by Ariel Castro. Um, and, you know, I remember after Ariel Castro's arrest, I was actually my son was in. Um, gymnastics. He was about three years old. And uh, I'm sitting there at his gymnastics meet and um, I, I get a, um, a text from an old source in, inside the Cleveland Police Department. And all it says is Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus just walked out of a house on the west side. And I said, holy shit. And, uh, you know, the other parents in the room are kind of like, what? What's going on? And I'm like, you're going to hear about it in about an hour. And um, he finished up his, his uh, meet. And then I got in the car, drove straight to Cleveland.
0: I hope you dropped him off at home.
2: Of course, yes. Okay,
0: good. Just but by the way, I've already in a few minutes we've been together. Just wanted to make sure. Yes.
2: Well, you know, now that he's 12, you know, sometimes I'll go out uh, on these these adventures and and now he's bugging me. He's like you got to take me with you. Let's go, let's go find this guy. And I'm like maybe when you're maybe when you're 14, you know, let's right. wait a couple of years at least.
0: Okay, so you you went to, directly to Cleveland?
2: Yeah. And the news was breaking on the radio as I was driving up there. And, uh, by the time I got there, it was a big media circus. And, um, you know, what, I, what, what I suggested that the families do was I said, you know, look outside the hospital. Cause I, I met with, uh, um, Gina's mother at the hospital.
0: Did they remember you?
2: They did. Yeah. And, uh, they, I pointed outside. I said, look, you, you see local trucks out here and it's already a circus. I said, by Tomorrow morning, there's going to be trucks out there from every major news station in the country and probably the world. I said, you guys need to get together and speak with one voice as soon as possible. And uh, um, so that's what they did. I'm sure I wasn't the only one telling them to do that. Um, But uh, I went back to my notes um, and realized that I had Ariel Castro's name in my notes the whole time. Really? Really? Yeah, and that's one of those things that sticks with me, that will stick with me forever, because I was that close. But if I was that close, the FBI was that close. Um, the reason I had his name was uh, Arlene Castro, uh, Ariel's daughter, was the last person to see Gina Jesus. And I remember going to my editor and saying, hey, let me talk to Arlene. And at the time, she was a minor, and we decided, no, 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 she's a kid, let's not bother her. But if I had gone and spoken to Arlene Castro, would she have said something that would raise a red flag about her dad? I, you know, I don't know. Um,
0: Did you go to the police with all these thoughts and information at the time?
2: Well, I didn't have much to go on and actually started with the FBI. Um, the FBI invited me in and that's where we had this big discussion with the parents. So I was, I was you know, working with them and, you know, taking their information as, as, as good as it was. I didn't really have anything new for them at the time.
1: I have a question.
2: Um, yeah.
1: Watching a lot of TV crime shows, as I still do, it always seems that the the police and the other agencies are always in competition with one another and they don't like outside influences, like journalists coming into the mix. What is your relationship with like uh, law enforcement and those agencies when you're doing what you do? Um, that's
2: a good question. Uh, you know, as a journalist, um, you know, it, it's, it's hit or miss. So some departments I'd go to and I'd say, hey, you know, I want to write about this unsolved murder and get some new information out there. And I remember in one, and they're either going to be completely open or they're going to be completely closed. And I remember this uh, 1964 unsolved murder of this woman um, in Garfield Heights, Uh, Beverly Jaros, which is a very popular uh, cold case out here. Um, Beautiful young woman. She was, I think, 16 a few days after Christmas. Um, There was a window of time where she was alone at home, and we're talking 10 minutes. Sometime in that 10 minutes, somebody came into her bedroom, stabbed her to death, and ran away. Um, It's a weird case because there's two uh, forms of murder. Um, They stabbed her, and that probably would have killed her, but they also uh, tied a rope around her neck. And, uh, that's actually how she died. So, um, it's a, it's a weird unsolved and, uh,
0: Well, what's interesting is you're saying they, not one person. What makes you think it was a they, or do you already know it was a they?
2: No, it was one person. I'm just saying they, because I, you know, with, with pronouns and everything, um, you know, I, They were non-binary. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> trying, trying. So, <laughs> um, so that's the, you know, so the Garfield Heights, when I walked in, they, they opened up their old case files. And it's still technically an open case because there's no statute of limitations on murder. Um, and so I had complete access, names of uncharged suspects, all that. But then Bay Village, you know, on the Amy MiHalovic case, they've never shared any information with me uh, other than to verify, you know, some, some facts. And I've given them a ton of information over the years. Unfortunately, that case is still still unsolved.
1: In going through all, you know, you're doing all my research here. Um, <laughs> you talked about like open journalism, where like you put, you blog, you put everything out there. Yes. So on, I thought on one hand, okay, that seems like a good idea. Throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. But does it also lead people on a wild goose chase? Sure. Just like on a haystack, looking at every
2: piece of hay. Of course, yeah. Just like the police, though, you know the the police are, they, you know that's that's ninety percent of their job is is tracing down these you know, the, the wild goose chases until they realize that's the wrong track and whatever they're left with at the end is, is, you know, what leads them to the killer. Um, but yeah, I had this idea um, when the social media really started taking off, probably around 2008 to 2010, that I could take what happens in the writer's room at a newspaper, which is where you sit down and you discuss all the particulars of, of your story, in my case, these cases, and uh, and people would realize that that's just you know that's just conversation. that's getting us closer to where we need to be. So I, I had this idea to to form these true crime blogs where you would put out all the information, every tip that came in, all the all the data, all the documents. Um, and it was a grand idea, but uh, but just like you know everything else on social media, it, it, it's not going to work because there's so many. Uh, gross people out there, so many you know, people that just want to stir up stuff for, for drama, and people can't compartmentalize, and maybe this is a good thing, I don't know, people, average people, can't distinguish between a news blog and a news site. So I had this idea that we could be open and honest with communication on this blog, and people would realize that what's being discussed isn't hard news
0: you are giving people a lot of credit.
2: Yeah, so (laughs) it did not work. (laughs) Well, uh, well, question for you,
0: are you ever concerned that some of the information that you share about a case that maybe a suspect or a killer might go into hiding because maybe you guys are getting too close with the information that you put out there?
2: Right, right. Um, You know, uh, not really because Most of the information, uh, you know, I I think there's only a couple cases where I might have information that isn't widely known already. Um, And I've gotten away from this idea of an open, complete, you know, newsy writer's room blog. And instead, I try to make these websites kind of the clearinghouse, the database of the information we know about a case. So if you're interested in the Amy Mahalovic case, for example, you can go on my website and kind of get up to speed with what's been um uh made public by now. kind of a one-stop shop instead of having to read, you know, twenty different newspapers.
0: Now let's talk about the Porchlight Project. Sure. Yeah. Now is you do do you now your website is separate from the Porch Light Project, correct? Or are they now one and the same? Nope, nope, it's it's separate. Okay. Explain what the Porch Light Project is, which is amazing.
2: Thank you very much. So um as a, as a writer of, of, of true crime, eventually I became very uh, uh, <laughs> um, jaded, I think, and just tired of writing about cases that, uh, that I'd never be able to solve. And so I thought maybe I could take off my journalist hat and, and put on another hat. And I had this idea to form a nonprofit that would raise uh, money for DNA testing and genetic genealogy in order to close some of these old cold cases in Ohio.
0: When did you, you start down that path?
2: Um, well, we made it official almost exactly a year ago.
0: So sort of in line with the Golden State Killer case, so sort of in that same time frame.
2: When, when Barbara Ventner um, and, and the people involved in the Golden State Killer case uh, were able to get an arrest in that case using genetic genealogy. That changed everything. And I knew crime enough to know the writing on the wall, which wasn't being made public right away, which is this is the first new tool that we've given detectives since the discovery of DNA um, and how it could work in 1987. Um, before that, it was fingerprints. You know, Before that, it was, it was blood type. They haven't had a new tool um, in, in like 30 years. And now they have this genetic genealogy. And it's like, if there was DNA left at a crime scene and it's viable, it's almost a hundred percent that we'll find out who left that sample. It's amazing. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge leap forward. So, um, all these States, it, and it's totally the wild West, by the way, it's totally unregulated and it probably should be regulated to some extent. There's kind of like this social contract that everybody has right now where, you know, we'll just use this technology for rapes and murders, you know, and uh, one genealogist already tried to overstep that and uh, used it in a, in a, in a simple assault case. And that caused GEDmatch, which is this big DNA database of profiles that makes all this possible um, to almost shut down. Really? Uh, Yeah, they went from, it went from like a million profiles that you could access down to like a hundred thousand because they had to change their terms of service. And now you have to opt in so that people can use that genetic data uh, instead of having to opt out. So um, it almost killed it because, you know, it's unregulated. So uh, anyways, I saw this possibility and the state of Ohio, like many states, um, they the way they test DNA is they look for certain markers that they can upload into the system called CODIS, which is a database of people that have already been convicted of violent felonies. And uh, so what we need for genetic genealogy is a completely different test that their labs were not um, uh, handled to do. So you have to go to private labs, which means you need some sort of you know, fundraising mechanism unless they pour tons of money into it. So, um, I saw an opportunity to be that, that go between. So I started this, um, I got together a great board of directors of lawyers and podcasters and journalists and, uh, former law enforcement and police chiefs to make it official. And, uh, a year ago we launched, uh, we raised a bunch of money. Uh, we raised about, um, well, you know, a bunch relatively, we, we quickly raised about $6,000 to, um, uh, run new DNA tests on a cold case here in Ohio, uh, the unsolved murder of Barbara Blatnick.
0: How much do you, in general, do these outside lab DNA tests
2: cost? It's typically, uh, each case, um, it would be, each test is, is between two dollars and $3,000. Um, with the Blatnick case, we had to run an additional test uh, it, it, because it kind of came back as a mixture um, where we had some DNA underneath this woman's fingernails that they sent to the lab, and what they got back was a mixture of, of her DNA and the ki- and the supposed the suspect uh, the alleged killer's DNA. And for the first time, genetic genealogists were able to um, split out uh, Barbara's DNA from that mixture, and what was left was uh, her uh, alleged killer's. Um, it was really interesting how they did this. Um, They went to Barbara's sister, got her DNA, got a fresh sample of Barbara's DNA, and then they kind of made it like a filter. And so they found all the markers that matched up with the Blatniks and kind of discarded those. And what were left was a profile that ended up matching a man named uh, James Zastonik, who was arrested for this murder um, just uh, in May. Now, months. was
0: he already in CODIS, or you had to do the genetic genealogy to work your way to him?
2: Yeah, we had to, he was not in CODIS. Um, so we had to, that, that's where the genetic genealogy came in. So the Porchlight Project raised the money for not only the DNA test, but to pay the genetic genealogist too. And we went through Identifinders International, which is Colleen Fitzpatrick's company. It's in Southern California. And uh, they they're probably the best of the best. Um, Colleen literally wrote the book on forensic uh, genealogy 10 years before any of this was possible.
1: So all the funds go to that, or do, do funds go to the families at all?
2: Um, all the funds go to the the tests and uh, the genetic genealogy. And um, you know you can find more information porchlight online. Dot org or you know all that stuff is through my website at jamesrenner.com. You no, know, I'm asking because
1: let's say if my mother happens to go missing at some point in time, eight o'clock.
0: Which would be difficult because she's no longer with us.
1: I know you're stepping on it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, just looking <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm looking for money. I was looking for windfall.
0: <laughs> How much can I get if I pretend she's missing? Exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, well you know we'll get you some media attention. We can we can at least help with that. Uh, Thank you, that's a good
0: thing. So, I mean, you're kind of a cottage industry. You're a full-service operation, so people can just submit their cases? How does it work?
2: Yeah, you can submit a case through our website. Right now, we're trying to concentrate on Ohio cases. Okay. Because we're still building. We're starting small and getting bigger and bigger. We've had some really nice donations in the last couple weeks that allows us to take on two additional cases this year. So we're hoping to take on uh, at least two more cases this year. Right now, we are looking into kind of an odd case out of New London, Ohio. There were these bones that were found. This couple bought an old house, an old farmhouse, and they had a barn behind the house. And they go up to clean the attic, and in the corner, tucked in the corner, wrapped up in newspaper, are these bones.
0: I would be so fast fucking out of there. Right. Yeah. Yes. Call
2: the realtor. Yes.
0: Yeah, Bye bye um,
2: So, you know, the wife is like, I think those are human. And the husband's like, nah, they can't be, nah. And eventually she called the police and they came in and they checked it out and they're like, yeah, that, that's, those are human bones. So they shipped it to an anthropologist uh, who figures out that these bones are for a young woman, maybe as young as 12 years old. <gasps> and they could have been up in the barn for 30 years or more. Or more. So... It's a neat case, right? Because, A, we don't even know if we're dealing with a murder. Or maybe there's some explanation for why those bones end up there that's not murder.
0: What, someone just said, oops, and left her up there? It's a tough explanation to, you know. It's like when the dog was out in the backyard and brings back a femur. Right. you got (laughs) to ask some questions.
2: Well, you know, the anthropologist wondered if maybe the previous homeowner, like 30 years prior, was a chiropractor. Oh. So he's like, oh, chiropractor, maybe he was using it for, uh, I don't know, a study. Maybe he was studying how to crack bones. That seems a little far-fetched to me. What I like about it, and it all comes full circle, right? Because these bones and that barn are four houses down from my favorite suspect in the Amy Mihalovic murder from where he grew up. Really? Yep. Ooh, are you suspecting a serial killer? Hmm. Well, it's possible. At the very least, I want to rule it out. And I want to give this woman her name back so we can return the bones to her family and she can have a proper burial. Um, And we're very close. Okay, here's a question. The
1: bones were found in newspaper. Yeah. What was the date on the newspapers?
2: That was my first question, too. And I was told that, and of course, this is all gone now. Right. I was told that the newspapers were too degraded to be able to read. Which I find a little hard to swallow, but whatever the case, the newspapers are gone. There had to have been
0: some fingerprints, something right. on that newspaper. Well, I have a feeling when the owners said, ooh, what's this pile, picked it up, unwrapped it, and saw the bones, my instinct would be a scream and drop it. Right, yeah. And most likely, they picked it up. I mean, you know that, come on, Sabrina, you and I would be like, ah! and throw it away.
1: Or maybe it was a racing form, and the detective was a, a degenerate gambler,
0: <gasps> and he took
1: it to run to the track.
0: Good point.
1: Thinking <laughs> out of the box.
0: Just exactly, just thinking out of the box. You yeah. Do you hope to expand? I mean, I know you're saying you're Ohio-based, Porchlight Project into like a national. I mean, clearinghouse is the wrong word, but clearinghouse. Right.
2: right. I mean, that's the lofty pie in the sky goal. I was very happy when our first case led to an arrest and we were able to prove to everybody that like, we can do this. And I said, we could do this. We did it and we can do this. So right now we're we're at that stage and I want to prove that we can take care of the Ohio cases first and uh, build from there. It's already starting to feel like I'm the, the apprentice in that Mickey Mouse cartoon with the wizard where I had this idea to make things easier and now it's taken on a life of its own and it's becoming out of my control and, and this big thing. So I'm hoping it grows into something huge, but not that quickly. You know, if we can take baby steps towards that. But yeah, no, I'd I'd love to solve all the cold cases, please.
0: Is there a case that still keeps you up at night?
2: Yeah, there are a couple. Um, The one I'm thinking the most about right now is uh, The Unsolved Murder of Lisa Pruitt, because that's gonna be my next book. And that's been my COVID project so far. And I've been chipping away at this book. I'm about 300 pages in. It's a weird story. So in 1990, this 16-year-old girl named Lisa Pruitt was stabbed to death behind a mansion in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is another very rich neighborhood of Cleveland. And it was like the best day of her life. She had aced a German test. Her boyfriend had just gotten out of the hospital. She got her driver's license that day, and she was celebrating. And then she made plans to meet up with her boyfriend at 12.30 a.m. She was going to sneak out of her house and ride her bike over to his house. And the next thing you know, she's found stabbed 22 times in the backyard of this mansion in Shaker Heights.
0: Was she from Shaker Heights?
2: She was. She lived there, too. A very bright girl, worked student newspaper, wrote poetry. And it's a tragedy. And in my mind, it's almost like a modern day crucible in many ways. And here's why they found her body about a hundred yards from her boyfriend's back door. And when I say he got out of the hospital that day, I mean, he got out of the mental hospital that day. And while he was in the mental hospital, he would write her notes saying, please stay away from me. When I get out, I don't want to hurt you. So all that evidence there, and then her friends get together and they start discussing the case among themselves. And they start saying, hey, what about Kevin Young, this other kid in the school? He's really weird. And Kevin was no doubt. He was weird. He was crass. He would say you know, mean things. He was kind of like a goth kid, but also a ultra conservative, just kind of big and boisterous and the weird kid in school. So all the friends went to the police and said, and we're talking teenagers, they go to the police and they say, hey, it's Kevin Young, it's Kevin Young, it's Kevin Young. The police put on blinders and they go after this kid relentlessly. And they eventually charge him with the murder in 1992. He goes to trial in 93, luckily is acquitted of the murder, but then he lives under that shadow for the rest of his life. And he died due to complications of alcoholism about four years ago. So it's a tragedy because They went after the wrong guy. These teams kind of took over the investigation. The police followed suit. And I've always thought that, you know, there's a much more likely suspect in there that I think everybody can see. But as I've been going through my notes and hundreds of pages of police documents and trial testimony, another suspect has emerged that is not Kevin Young and it's not the boyfriend and had the means motive and opportunity to do it. So that's kind of taken all my attention right now.
0: Wow, that's crazy. When do you think the book's gonna be done?
2: I'm hoping to have a draft shortly, and I'm hoping it'll be on shelves sometime next year.
0: Oh, that would be amazing. By any chance, is there a case in history that you've been obsessed with over your lifetime?
2: You know, I've always been attracted to the D.B. Cooper mystery, which isn't necessarily a homicide. It's this guy back in, I think, what was it, 72? Or early 70s, who hijacked a plane and demanded $200,000 in cash, and then had the pilot fly back into the air. And then he strapped on a a parachute and jumped out of the plane with the cash and the chute, and he's never been seen again. It's a very popular case. I'm sure most of your Mm -hmm. your listeners know about it. And uh, just a quick funny story on that, because at one time I was thinking about writing a book on it. And uh, there's just so many books on it. I don't know that I'll ever get to it. But Well, and
0: let's be honest, $200,000 does not get you far.
2: No, but back in the early 70s.
0: It would have gotten you, yeah.
2: Yeah, you could get at least set up there. Yeah. Especially a hippie. Right? Yeah. Right. And which probably, you know, given Seattle and and Portland area, you know. I wonder what would be the rate of conversion to money now. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's how Starbucks was funded, by the way that guy had this idea for a coffee shop. And he's like, "I need start up money.
0: Yes. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Turns out he's an
2: angel investor. So I, w- <laughs> I was thinking about writing this and it was shortly after 9-11. It was like 2003. We had just gone to war. And I said, I'm going to do this. So I flew out on my own dime. I flew out to Seattle to talk with the FBI agent in charge of that case. And on the way to the airport, near Columbus I stop at this gas station on the side of the road and it's the seedy gas station and I go inside and I'm just hungry so I grab a pack of almonds and there was a layer of dust covering the almonds and I'm like I know I shouldn't eat these but I'm going to eat these (laughs) I ate the almonds and I got by the time I got to the gate I was sick with food poisoning And so this is such an inappropriate story, but-
0: No, not for us. Tell it, please. Not for (laughs) us, for us, not
2: this group. As soon as the light went off for the seats, I ran to the bathroom and I locked myself in there. And everything that happened in there is unfit for human ears. It was just the most sick I've ever been. And I wouldn't get out of the bathroom. And I was convinced and the flight attendants are knocking. I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I was convinced that I was going to get pulled off that plane by Homeland Security when we landed. Because obviously, you know, 2003, everybody's thinking I'm a terrorist. What's this weird kid doing inside? So that kind of turned me off the whole (laughs) D.B. Cooper case. By the time (laughs) I got there, I was in no condition to interview, right? And I'm like, well, that's an omen. I'm going to give up this one.
0: I want to switch gears a tiny bit. (laughs) What was your major in college?
2: My major was English. I thought I would be... A high school English teacher I dressed like one so you know I thought it would be appropriate but then I just didn't like the responsibility for that seemed uh, seemed too much and by then I had the bug to get into journalism
0: so you have your podcast you have porch Lay project you have your website you're writing your next book anything we've missed what is next for you
2: Well, you mentioned the podcast. If your listeners enjoy true crime, my podcast is a little different. It's called The Philosophy of Crime. And I look at the big questions behind true crime, like why are we so obsessed with it? And even like questions like, does profiling work? You know, psychological profiling. How does it work? Does it work? Does it? Uh, Kind of. And it gets into the history of forensic genealogy and the ethics behind genealogy. And then it goes to classical philosophy for the answers. So like, what would Plato say about this? What would Socrates say?
0: Where did you go to school?
2: Kent State.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) It's very Kent State. It's not just, it's very, (laughs) I'm an English major, so we discussed this and this is my passion.
2: But what would Socrates say? Thank you. In fact, my last episode was about the Kent State shootings because we came up on the, yeah, and May, May was the 50th anniversary. So I wanted to go back and talk about how it is that there were a thousand people that were there that day of the shootings, and nobody can agree on how it started. So we look into what is objective truth? Is it real? Can there be two realities twisting around the same one, and we all see a different one? So it gets kind of trippy. So that's the philosophy of crime.
0: Well, that happens at an accident.
2: Yes, exactly right.
0: If you have a traffic accident, you can ask five people and they'll give you five different
2: stories. And each one of them will think that they're telling the truth and be 100% convinced of it.
0: Well, this has been so fascinating. Oh, great. I am a fan. People need to check out (laughs) the philosophy of crime. They need to check out your website. They need to check out Porchlight.
2: The Porchlight Project. It's porchlightonline.org, but if you just go to jamesrenner.com, you'll, you know, there's lots of fun stuff there.
0: Well, there is so much more to discuss with you. I hope you come back. Please, anytime. This has been such a treat. Thank you so, so much.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.